I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Bit foggy today, bit misty-eyed, bit fluffy-headed, bit all over the shop. Something's going on, I think, at the moment. Something, something pretty tangy is happening with the planets. That's what I think. I think Pluto's in a disco or whatever. Oh yeah, people are always talking about Mercury, Mercury in retrograde. My God, <laughs> Mercury in retrograde. But it's unretrograded itself last week. So something else it's is no going longer on. retro. Yeah. I am foggier than a doggier. My insomnia is back in full force and I had a catnap at 7am. To be honest, I have only got myself to blame. I am, as you know, quite big on putting the old phone to bed and only checking social media once a week. And I have been all over it in the last few days. Just because with a new book out, I feel like you have to be quite engaged on social media. But amazing how much of an impact I can see it makes on my sleep so the boring truth is I know if you've got really bad insomnia the electronica is not for you can I just ask something not to personalize this if you've been on your phone all the time why did it take you so long to reply to my incredibly sexy photo that I sent to you at about five minutes to midnight last night because I actually didn't turn my phone on until um 4am and then I think I did reply to your midlife crisis selfie why did you reply to that let's face it sexed with the words ha 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 um yes interesting point I'm a bit tired so I'll follow (laughs) up on that later this week (laughs) I never want a sexy selfie to be greeted with the response ha 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 Pandora that's never what I'm looking for I think you'd have preferred that to the green-faced uh, emoji that is just spewing vomit from okay. the entirety of its mouth. Those are my two options now. Yeah, on- only those two options. <laughs> I wanted to start with something lovely that I heard Fern Cotton say on Joe Wicks's new podcast for the BBC. And she was talking about... She talks quite a lot about this now, which I always really enjoy, but how she did this massive kind of pivot in her career... Um, away from being like a sort of darling of the television and doing radio into mental health and podcasting and stuff on her own terms, really, when she had kids. And um, she talks a lot about the kind of need to pull herself back as much as she's putting herself forward. And I think whatever your lifestyle choices or your life experience is, the idea that a flower cannot bloom all year round is quite nice just to consider even if you're in a real rut in life. And I know lots and lots of people have been in big ruts this year. 
Yeah, I keep thinking back to this thing that Louis Theroux said on Adam Buxton's podcast months ago that's so simple and self-explanatory, but I just think I find it really hard to remember sometimes, which is it can't be sunny days every day. It's so true. You can't optimise yourself and your life and your schedule every day. That's just not the ecology of life. It's also not healthy. Got to have those contrasts. Um, But I do love, like, we're literally talking, like, really crap tattoos. I know. A flower cannot bloom all year round. It can't be sunny every day. You're going to get that on one foot and mine on the other. Your husband and I are actually WhatsApping a lot about tattoo ideas at the moment. Not matching. That would be inappropriate. I'd quite like a matching one with him. I'd quite enjoy that, actually, just because I think it would make everyone else feel so awkward. (laughs) I just feel like I'm ready for another tattoo. I'm ready to just... I'm just ready to get everything pierced, get everything tattooed, take all my clothes off and walk through Camden Town, I think, now, at this point. So everyone can look forward to that. But back to the flower. Yeah. By Fern. Do you you think I'm going quite woo-woo? Yeah, I'm totally here for it. It happens to all of us. It's inevitable. It's called the Great Paltrow Effect. And to tell you what next... Yeah. It just happens as you get into your mid-30s and beyond. Bet you didn't like me saying that, did you, Panda? Mid-30s. Girlfriend's got to get a piece of rose quartz and put it under her pillowcase because I've been doing that for two weeks and let me tell you, I'm a different woman. That's like a pee under your pillow. Do you not feel the rose quartz? Maybe you're a different woman because it's severed your brain through your pillow <laughs> no I just sometimes put it's my bottomized you I put my hand under the pillow in the middle of the night and I just feel this cold little lump of rose quartz and I hold its hand I need a holiday I think <laughs> in lieu of a holiday why don't you have a scroll on Instagram well interesting you should mention Instagram panda I saw something on Instagram last week that was so pleasing to me And I've since tried to find it and can't find it. So part of me thinks maybe this was a fever dream. Um, I think more likely it is that Gemma Collins deleted it. Basically, I saw a screenshotted image of a change.org petition, I think, that said, please stop Mike Tyson from wrestling with a great white shark. And underneath was this incredibly impassioned caption from Gemma Collins about animal rights. And... The post is now gone. I think a lot of... Oh, yeah, that was the other weird layer to it. Gillian McKeith of Perfect Poo fame... Yes! Uh, commented, <laughs> ..commented underneath saying, Gemma, I think this is a joke. The whole thing was mad. Maybe I did dream this. Maybe this was the work of the Rose Quartz and Pluto doing the hanky-panky. I do think I did see it, but anyway, it's now no longer there and I can find no trace of it on the internet. But Gemma Collins was was very outspoken about how she felt that Mike Tyson shouldn't wrestle a great white shark. They don't even have hands, so how would they wrestle? Is there anything on Google? Let me look. Is there anything about Mike Tyson and a great white shark? Yeah, here we go. Metro, my favourite newspaper. Mike Tyson set to fight a great white shark to kick off Discovery Shark Week. The former heavyweight champion, who's been dubbed the baddest man on the planet, will take on one of the world's most dangerous animals for the ultimate showdown. I just don't understand how that's ethical. Tyson versus Jaws, Rumble on the Reef. 
beyond ethical, logistically, how is this going to work? Well, that's absolutely bonkers, to be honest. As a fellow Devil Wears Prada enthusiast, I think you will appreciate this TikTok I was sent by a listener. You're not wearing a mask or staying home. You don't understand science. No, no. It wasn't a question. And in the video, the TikToker, is that what you call them, um, looks identical to Meryl Streep and she does all of that amazing kind of waving and flicking of her hands. It's really That's good. so good. Don't worry, I have not downloaded TikTok. I was merely sent the video content from it. I cannot cross that frontier. Yeah, I've said I've said it before. I've said it before. It's not for millennials and I just find it so cringe when millennials try to be groovy on TikTok. Speaking of great dames, I've got a brilliant news story for you from the past, Pandora. Love the past. Can't get enough of the past. And I don't actually know where it dates from. Imagine Victorian times. And it's a report on a girl who I quite like the sound of. The headline is, A Chelsea Girl Breaks the Record. A fat and blushing girl from Chelsea has broken the record at Marlborough Street. Her complaint was rum and coffee and her actions showed how fearfully strong that Chelsea coffee is. When the clerk of the court yesterday asked the honour of an introduction, she said her name was the same as it was before, but he could not remember it and it had slipped from everybody's memory and continues in a state of slip. It ought to be preserved, however, because the recording angel of the law had all these memoranda against her. One, she got drunk. Two, she got ever so much drunker. Three, she got fired out of a restaurant near the Haymarket. Four, she reached for the constable's eye with her shoe, which she had in her hand, and the constable's eye is all wrong. Five, she threw herself on the pavement and had to be taken in with the official van. Six, she hit the constable again and knocked his helmet an illegal distance. Seven, she rolled all over the street and part of her clothes came off. Eight, in riding to the station, she yelled and she yelled and she yelled. Nine, she drew pictures on the wall of her cell with a button hook. Ten, they were bad pictures and the damage to the walls is two shillings, sixpence. This was a large order for the bookkeepers of justice to figure out, but they made the whole bill one pound, two shillings and sixpence. Good time, gal. With a button hook. (laughs) I know. So good. The last dispatch I have from the acres of the internet this week is Lucian Freud's response to the journalist Lynn Barber's request for an interview, which is in letters of note, and I found it via the writer Sophie Hayward's Instagram. This is from 1995. Dear Mrs Barber, your letter to me is based on the assumption that there exists is some reason or need for you to interview or write about me. I do, as you rightly suppose, occasionally eat something and go to the dentist, but that is some way from agreeing to be shat on by a stranger. Sincerely, Lucien Freud. And I think I remember reading that she framed it and put it in her downstairs loo, although I might have embroidered that. I think she did. You would, wouldn't you? Absolutely would. I just love the turn it takes. It's quite gentle. And then, shat on by a stranger... And then as Sophie Hayward, who does celebrity interviews all the time, writes in her caption, I mean, he's not wrong. 
<laughs> also, I love that you can tell that Lynn Barber had obviously been quite dogged with him. He's obviously said, I don't have any time. And she obviously said, well, I'm sure you eat or go to the dentist. <laughs> You're right. They must have had quite a petty... <laughs> yeah, exactly. ...exchange about how he did sometimes leave the house or speak to other people. If anyone enjoyed that and wants to know more about Lynn Barber and the relationships that she's had and the interactions she's had with the enormously famous people that she's interviewed over the years. I think the reason I know about that letter is it's in her memoir, which is called A Curious Career, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. And if you're interested in the celebrity interview or how journalism has progressed in the last 40 years, it's such, such a good book and it's full of really juicy little tidbits like that. We had so much interesting uh, feedback in the inbox this week on last week's segment on child-free and motherhood. I think it's the most we've ever had on a topic. What a lot of letters pointed out is that not everyone who's child-free is child-free by choice. And I was thinking about why I personally neglected to mention this when we were talking last week. We talked about motherhood. We talked about being child free by choice. And I think the reason why I maybe omitted, um, very possibly to the detriment of the conversation, omitted that is because I felt like there's always the assumption that people are child free, not by choice. And so talking about the conversation as child free by choice felt like a necessary correction. But I understand that that then left some people feeling completely left out and unseen yeah so a few listeners wanted to be clear that being child free is not always a choice and I want to caveat that these listeners are talking about biological motherhood um adoption is not included in these letters one woman said I have had major abdominal surgery and two disastrous rounds of IVF and I've had to give up on my dream of co-creating a child with my wonderful husband. I am genuinely overcome as I even type these words. The grief is more than I thought it could be and it seems never-ending. Motherhood is not always a choice we can make. For many of us, some estimate as many as one in six, it is not simply something we can decide. Another said... There seems to always be a conversation about a woman's choice over whether she has children. What about those of us who never had this choice presented to us? I never made an active choice over career or motherhood. In fact, I would have loved to have children. But at the age of 44, I've never been in a stable relationship and children seem less likely. Other listeners wrote in about making difficult decisions and how they feel about them. I'm a 33-year-old woman and I don't think I want children. I'm in a happy long-term relationship and I'm always so surprised at how genuinely uncomfortable it seems to make others feel. One thing I've found particularly difficult to come to terms with is the impact that being child-free has on my female friendships and how isolated I feel as most of them embark on this life-changing journey into motherhood. And several women shared their perspectives on whether women should elicit pride in public about a drug-free birth. So brief recap, I mentioned that um, I had read a tweet a little while ago about a woman who had said that she was proud of herself for having a natural labour uh, or a drug-free labour. And someone had replied saying um, that that shamed women who had not had a drug-free labour. Um, and Dole, you mentioned, didn't you, that you felt like there was so much pressure around birth that that just is another kind of mm. stick to keep women in line with, a bit like the breastfeeding one? Yeah, I, th I think it's a more general note about 
about the demands that are put on women at every turn of, of, of their life, really, at every rite of passage. And it is often at the detriment of their physical or mental health. So while I think she has every right to feel, you know, pride about that experience and, you know, talk about it, I don't know if it's helpful to load it into the into the very public discussion about it, is all I was saying. We received some letters that offered a different point of view. This is from a midwife. I understand Dolly's concern. However, more broadly, it could be viewed as pride around achieving her birth choices or preferences. One third of women experience aspects of their birth as traumatic and one in 25 will go on to develop PTSD. I don't think it does a service to these women to silence pride around birth, even if it doesn't reflect your own choices. In fact, I think it does the opposite. There is an unspoken truth that it is selfish to want anything more from your birth than a healthy baby, often at the sake of your body, dignity, preferences and experience, and that being traumatised during birth is normal. In no other medical procedure are we pressured to relinquish as much consent i.e. think about episiotomies without consent, the husband's stitch, not telling mothers the realities of birth in order not to frighten them, and the normalising of incontinence. I think that creating more dialogue around birth and that some of it, not all of it, is within your control and you are absolutely allowed to be proud of a positive birth and that this doesn't make you self-indulgent is a good thing. That gave me real pause for thought. Yeah, me too. I think that's a very valid point. And last listener letter on this, again, this gave me a lot of pause for thought. If a woman had succeeded in any aspect of her life, be that a career goal, a relationship or any event that was as defining and important as the birth of a baby when she took to social media to share the news, we would raise her up. The clang of gin glasses full to the brim as we celebrate our sisters. Yet somehow, when a woman shares the joy of achieving the birth she wanted, it is so often met with criticism or seen as a tasteless brag. We should celebrate those accomplishments with the same gusto that we would for other meaningful events in the lives of women. Bettering birth for those who have experienced trauma or for those whose births look different to how they had planned looks like education. It looks like support. It looks like continuity of care. But we do not improve birth by shutting down those stories of joy, trauma or anything in between, however confronting they feel. I think I take issue with the idea of achievement and success when it comes to birth, because this is just, I know I haven't gone through birth, but I know lots of women who have done everything that they could to to help actualize all the hopes of their birth, the birth that they wanted. They couldn't have done anything more. And as the first letter pointed out, there's only so much that you can do. This is a lot of this experience is something that is out of our control. So I think that's just why I would never want for a woman to think of their birth experience as a failure like a career goal or like something that they could have done more or they could have been in better shape or they could somehow have controlled their body in some way that means that they could have met the goals of of what they wanted from their birth. I would just personally, for me, I know I would hate that if I had a baby and for, you know, every woman that I know and love and women I don't know and love, I just wouldn't ever want a woman to feel like they had failed. I I think that's all I meant, but I do take on those points and birth is an amazing thing. And I'm so happy when I hear from women who had a positive birth experience or or it happened to go the way that they planned it to go. I think that is wonderful. And I'd never not, not want people to share that. I think I just 
think we should be sensitive about how we talk about it. You raise a um, really relevant point, though, I think, about uh, goals. And uh, I think success actually should be something we apply to our personal as much of our professional lives. But I do think that birth, like everything, is definitely suffering the fate of optimization. And um, like you say, it's quite, I think it's very hard to find that middle point of choice and surrender. Um, and the way we talk about it is quite complicated. Basically, it's a really complicated subject to talk about, which isn't to say we shouldn't do it. But the idea that we can when we're talking, not even just me and you on this podcast, but when any women are talking, that we that everyone can be included in what we're saying all the time, that's just not going to be the case, especially if your lived experience makes you feel incredibly certain of one point of view. We also got some really useful and interesting feedback in response to our brief discussion of healthcare systems last week. An NHS doctor wrote in to say this, I thought it would be important to note that saying how lucky we are sadly does not apply to everyone in this country. Migrant workers, asylum seekers and refugees all have to pay a surcharge to use the NHS at prices that are outrageously unfair. Furthermore, after life-saving treatments, they can be handed bills in their hospital beds by uniformed nurses. Having to imagine that reality is awful. I have seen firsthand how doctors have been used against their will as border guards and felt it was important to make people aware of what is going on under our noses in an institution we so readily claim to be better than America. That's staggering, isn't it? I had no idea about that surcharge. Uh, Thank you so much for informing us. And thank you so much for all your letters. We love reading them. Another tip we got this week that I think is so amazingly helpful, uh, especially at the moment when lots of libraries can't open, lots of libraries funding is like a real issue. I'm pretty scared for the fate of libraries. And anyway, there is a great app called Borrowbox, which is an app that for books that is hooked up to the library. And it basically allows you to download e-audiobooks to your phone or tablet. It means... This is especially useful for people vulnerable or uh, isolating. It means you don't have to go into your library physically to access their free audiobooks. You can um, get your library's content through Borrowbox. That's a brilliant idea. Thank you to the listener who uh, let us know about that. One other thing I wanted to flag is that funding to end FGM in Britain has gone down by 84% in the last five years. Campaigners themselves are in disagreement over the impact of this. Former guest of the High Loan, Nimco Ali, for example, says that funding does not make a difference as it's not about expenditure but protection, whereas others see education as a necessary part. Anita Prem, founder of the Freedom Charity, said that the decline in funding stymies educational initiatives that were to be unrolled in secondary schools in September. There are 220 schools on the waiting list who want to implement education, says Prem, but there is no funding to implement implement the education which is so frustrating from now on as we always intended to switch our charities midway through the year the high low will be donating half of the profits from our merch line to the freedom charity another good one we've previously donated to is the orchid project and we will link to that in the show notes The other charity that we're going to donate to is Black Minds Matter. We've talked about this charity on the podcast before. It's one that Pandora and I feel very passionately about. It was started in June this year and it aims to provide healthcare and resources to black individuals and black families. 
And as part of its service, it provides up to 12 sessions with a black therapist. It's raised lots of money so far, but at the moment, its funding means it's only uh, able to fulfill 50% of therapy requests. So the other half of our merch proceeds will now be going to Black Minds Matter. And we will link in the show notes to the website so you can make a donation if you'd like to and you're able to. I have a poll for you, Doll. Well, not so much a poll as a review. It turns out, revelation of the century, that people are happier by the sea. That's very unsurprising, isn't it? So, according to DEFRA, people who live by the sea have better mental health than those who are farther inland and do more physical activity in what is known as the blue gym effect. Hmm... I don't like gyms, but I'd like to be in the blue gym. I'm guessing that's exercising by the sea. Mm. I've interestingly just written a piece about this for my monthly newsletter, The Meander, with Dolly Alderton, because it's a seaside-themed issue. And I think that there's something... Again, this is a very obvious thing to say. I think... There's something about the magnitude and the strength and the endlessness of the sea that it's a daily reminder when you're by it or when you are holidaying by it or you live by the sea of the sort of absurd and laughable insignificance of the individual. And I think that that is something that we think we don't crave. We think that we crave to feel big. We think that we crave power. We think that we crave, um, you know dazzling individualism we think that we crave audience and being known and understood but actually I think for so many of us there is this quite staggering relief in the sensation of feeling tiny (laughs) because that's what we are I don't think that's obvious actually and I know exactly what you mean and I, I think that might be why it feels so resonant at the moment did you see the um, food critic Jay Rayner uh, writing about how he won't leave bad reviews for restaurants anymore? No, but I applaud him. Where did he say that? So I heard about this recently, a couple of weeks ago from a friend, and then I actually just read something this weekend where he said, um, it, they're talking. he's talking about how... Um, you know, restaurants are really in trouble, not just from the kind of dry season of the pandemic, but also, I don't know if you've seen that loads of people aren't turning up for their bookings. So Tom Kerridge ranted about the failure of 27 people to show up one night last week at his restaurant. And that has led to suggestions that diners be charged deposits when they book. And I don't think that's an unfair suggestion, actually, if it's the if it's the choice between restaurants surviving and closing. Anyway, he writes, I've decided that for the foreseeable future that there will be no negative reviews. If I come across a duff place, I'll simply chalk it up to experience and move on to somewhere better. I think that's great. I I also think as well, I think it was him or maybe it was Marina O'Loughlin said, it also feels so unfair that the tradition of restaurant review is that you review the restaurant in its infancy, but a restaurant isn't really a restaurant until it's on its feet. That's such a good point. 
like you can't really understand what a restaurant's like rituals and atmosphere and service mm. is properly until it's you know a proper business that's running and has a community you know after a year maybe I think it was Marina who said that restaurants should be reviewed after a year yes because that is really one like when we're reviewing books and films you don't actually need to be swayed by audience response that kind of needs to be made on its own merit doesn't it but a restaurant is that's such a reciprocal relationship a restaurant comes alive by its customers and and as you say by its by its routines I really liked the decision he made because um that's actually always been my mo in the main on the high low and people have sometimes questioned that we only talk about stuff we love that that's not particularly rounded criticism but my theory's always been that there's a million different ways for things to flounder in the world now i think critique is out of control especially online and that's just not something i want to play a part in if if i don't like a book I don't mention it and same as Jay, I move on to something better. Yeah, and I also think as well that my favourite type of conversation and journalism and radio programme and features journalism and culture journalism is someone talking passionately about something that's really engaged with them. It's why Desert Island Discs is so good and why I fucking talk about it all the live long day because passion and connection to stories and pieces of art and pieces of work I just think is endlessly fascinating and stimulating to listen to I don't get joy out of hatchet jobs and I think the mistake that people make is they think that impassioned advocacy when we talk about art or cultural even restaurants that we've enjoyed or that have been important to us is gushing that somehow it's lovey-ish thoughtless indistinguishable and unselective sort of waffle and it's not and it so rarely is I just love hearing people turned on talking about what turns them on I think for me personally I will always prefer to read and listen to that kind of thought process over a negative rant I just think if you don't like something not mentioning it is um you know that's a that's not a point in itself but that's a that's a that's a mark yeah exactly exactly well speaking of impassioned speeches I have got a treat to recommend our listeners. For any of our listeners who read and loved Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodessa Ackner, you are going to adore this. Fleischman is in Trouble was one of my favourite novels of recent years. It's a story about a newly divorced surgeon in Manhattan who is entering the world of online dating, compulsive casual sex and sexting for the first time in his adult life. And the story is hilarious and so pacey it almost reads like a thriller when you're reading it and it's about this very well-intentioned man trying to balance the mess of a relationship with his ex-wife working out what went wrong in his marriage raising two kids working in a very high pressure hospital and trying to be this stallion basically and yes I loved it so did everyone else it was an absolutely rightfully enormous hit 
And Taffy has written a piece for The Cut in which Dr. Toby Fleischman is working in a New York City hospital during the pandemic. So it's a short story about Toby Fleischman imagined in this time. And she manages to look at so many ways the pandemic has affected a city's population and weaves in so many little stories. It's dense with characters and experience and anecdotes, but it doesn't feel like it. I just loved it and I could read Taffy's fiction forever and never get bored. So this is a section from the short story where Dr Fleischman has just met a patient called Ira who has jaundice. Ira and Rhoda had three children at home in New Jersey where they lived. When the schools were shut down, all the iPads in the house had been commandeered for the day-long instruction enrichment that the private schools kept up in order to make sure that parents felt they were still getting their tuition's worth. Ira was in his late 50s, which was exactly how old you'd have to be to not understand that when a kid signed into an iPad using your Apple ID to download the distance learning apps, she also signed into everything else, text messages and email accounts. It was literally four hours into lockdown before the woman he'd been fucking on the side texted him. Fond memories of being bent over your desk and fucked like you're a machine. His daughter saw this and began to cry. She was 11. She didn't know what she was looking at, but she knew to cry. Rona, trying to figure out how to set up a conference meeting for their nine-year-old, came over to see what the ruckus was. Now, two weeks later, I was praising God for this bout of jaundice because it got him out of the house from a wife who had not experienced the catharsis of filing for divorce only because the courts were not yet online and was therefore letting him have it on the hour. The quarantine is going to shine a light, my friend, Ira said. It's going to show everyone exactly who they are and where they stand. And then you know what's going to happen? He shook his head at himself in the mirror. When it's all over, we're going to forget how to live in the dark again. Maybe that's good, Toby said as he made notes on Ira's chart, because that felt like a thing you should say. Ira made a disgusted noise that involved a rush of air being extinguished from his nose. He never stopped looking in the mirror. You have no idea how important the dark is, my friend. So that's just this like brilliant little exchange between him and one of his patients. That just appeals so much to anyone that loves Fleischmann, doesn't it? Just the Apple ID login. She didn't know why she was crying, but she knew to cry. It's it's so deliciously cynical and sharp. And Taffy just does this amazing thing in this piece, which is, you know, a, a moment of history. This this short story. This will this is a capsule for this time told through this incredibly popular character, fictional character. But she like peppers the details of the pandemic and its knock-on effect into every every sentence and every word of the story, but you don't, it doesn't feel constructed and it doesn't feel heavy-handed. It just feels like this really full account of all the ways you haven't even, you know, the fact that he can't even file for a divorce because all the, all the divorce courts aren't online yet. Just these tiny details that that make it so evocative. I haven't read many short stories that have been written set in the pandemic either. No, me neither. Because she'll have had to, uh, she'll have had to write that very, very quickly. The turnaround. Yeah, she goes on in the story to look at how casual sex has been a casualty of the pandemic, uh, which is obviously something that's very trivial in the grand scheme of things, uh, and what people have been dealing with in the last six months. But it is something that I have thought about quite a lot. You know, for people whom sex and touch isn't just a hobby; it's a compulsion and a way that they feel 
vital and themselves and alive how they have coped in the last five months. And obviously Fleischmann is a a great channel in which to explore that because it's because he's a character who has come to promiscuity late in life, all guns blazing. So this part of the story describes Fleischmann having an encounter with a nurse who works at the hospital. Meanwhile, she'd gotten some lube from a sonogram machine, a blue jelly that made a farting noise when she squeezed it from the bottle. It was also clinical. He couldn't bear it. He took her wrist and said, I'm not sure this is working. They were the kind of horny that was born of sadness and fear, the worst kind of horny, so much so they couldn't even get it right. Nancy had nodded despairingly how fast people can go from being dirty to being despondent, and he'd worried that he'd broken some kind of unspoken code about the secret hospital hookup, that you're never supposed to acknowledge it or speak of it, and for the love of God, you don't stop it midway. It was important to keep this up because nearly 80% of sexual encounters among doctors at a hospital are about the immediate need for an expression of vibrant health and vigour in the face of disease, the only defiance a person could cling to after seeing some of the things they saw. He should have just pretended... That is a graphic little excerpt for our listeners. I know, and I just loved that thing about um, about that being the worst kind of horny. That's <laughs> so well described. Despondency just around the corner. Yeah. And then just the last bit I wanted to read, because I think it's another just perfect description of this unprecedented time, is when he's just had to deliver some sad news to a patient. He wheeled Felix out himself. He'd wanted to hug him then, but hugging was extinct. Handshakes were over. We were now fully separate from one another, scared of closeness. The normal ways Toby had of dismantling the alpha beta structure of the doctor-patient intimidation cycle, a high five, a hand on the shoulder, those things were over. Everyone was alone. Wow, I can't wait to read her next one. Me too. Me too. I just absolutely love her writing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Spotlight Oral Care. Spotlight Oral Care is founded by two dentist sisters, Dr. Lisa and Dr. Vanessa Creven. Unlike many mainstream toothpaste brands, the entire range of Spotlight Oral Care is toxin-free, palm oil-free, and their toothpaste tubes are 100% recyclable. This is major. 25 million non-recyclable toothpaste tubes go into landfill every year. Their hero product is the Teeth Whitening System, which includes the 14-day course of teeth whitening strips and the whitening toothpaste. You wear the strips for one hour for 14 days and all evidence of red wine and coffee consumption is gone. Combine the strips with the use of the whitening toothpaste for best results. Even better, Spotlight Oral Care is designed to be suitable for even the most sensitive mouths, which is great news to me because I used teeth whitening strips once when I was at university and I couldn't eat ice cream for about a year. They hummed with pain. 
This is dentist approved and really effective without hurting or damaging the enamel or causing sensitivity. The hero product from Spotlight Oral Care is the Sonic Toothbrush. It's an incredible product which gives you that dentist feeling of clean. There are three settings for sensitive teeth, normal teeth and the high intensity whitening setting for blasting away any stains. The battery lasts a whopping 70 days and it comes with a natty little travel case for all of your staycations this year. Use the code HILO25 for 25% off everything on site at uk.spotlightoralcare.com. Thank you very much to Spotlight Oral Care. What have you been reading, Panda? So I've been reading The Weekend, which is a book by Charlotte Wood all about a friendship circle of women in their 70s. There's been quite a lot written about this book. Uh, It's definitely one for you, Doll. It's about three women in their 70s. Um, The disappointments and cruelty. um, I think it furthers our conversation that we touched on last week about how old people are portrayed in life and love in a really interesting way. So brief synopsis, three women in their 70s go to the beach house of a recently deceased friend, Sylvie, it's set in Australia, to clear out her house so that her daughter can sell it. The three women are Jude, who's a very polished and brittle um, woman who is maintained by a man she's been in a very long-term relationship with. Um, Wendy, uh, a really successful feminist writer, kind of like the like the great feminist writers of the 70s and is now sort of quite pitiable and forgetful and has this tragic old dog called Finn who she really should put down who's kind of quite a clunky metaphor for for aging and Adele a um struggling actor who it's really intriguing at first Adele is she sees herself as this incredibly beautiful well-dressed woman who's just fallen on hard times she's she's just broken up with a partner and she's got no money at all but she she very much sees herself as still kind of this quite contained very beautifully preserved woman but then you realise at a point that you're just seeing Adele through Adele's eyes and that's not what Adele looks like. And that was actually shocking to read. It was done incre- with this incredible sleight of hand. Um, and there's a line I think you'll love about Adele and her kind of inability to retain connections and jobs and material goods and, and money. Artistic poverty was romantic when you were 30. It was after 50 that people began despising you for it. Mm, that's very clever. What I found really radical about this book is that there is kind of bodily developments or, or the letdowns of old age are not neglected. There are bits on, you know, bad backs and sore hips and grey hair and dangly boobs and no longer being fertile and all of those things. But they are, I would say, almost secondary to um petty issues that we always think of the preserve of younger women so a friend being pissed off with you or someone not paying you attention or a meal not being good or people not texting you back and it feels really radical because you do not read that about um, people in old age they're supposed to only care about the big things and they're supposed to lecture us foolish 
people in our 20s and 30s about how we really shouldn't be worrying about the little things and they won't matter when we're older. And again, I think that going back to what we are saying about understanding the sexuality of people over 50, that's an example of fleshing out older characters. Like, of, of course they continue to be petty. Of course they continue to be bothered by the things we're bothered about. What's really interesting, though, is they don't see themselves like that. Um, so mm. Adele is looking back on all the kind of hurts of because these women have been friends for such a long time she's looking back on the hurts of the past and I thought this was a really wonderful way of putting it what were all those hurts back then Adele couldn't remember though there was a time when she would keep track of everyone she would store them up and ponder them in her heart was that the expression something biblical whenever she was lonely or miserable back then she would take them out and count them all the time she'd been slighted or patronized the time she sat in the toilet crying while her dearest friends laughed together and talked so avid so brave and adele was an ugly little mouse hiding in the toilet weeping it gave her a sort of comfort back then to feel like she'd been wronged there was something exhilarating life-giving almost in the depth of that feeling there were fights and phone calls vengeful letters condemnations and accusations it was also exhausting when you looked back. However, did they have the energy? They were all mad. I really like the sound of these characters. It did make me feel, and I'm sure this is not the same for everyone in their early 20s or in their teens, actually more in my teens, that there was there was much more counting of there, wasn't it? Like so-and-so's cross with so-and-so and so-and-so's not talking to so-and-so. Another thing I loved and really wanted to highlight about the book is that, again, when I've read about... Uh, older protagonists is that motherhood tends to feature quite heavily and in the weekend unusually for a book about four women um, in their 70s motherhood and children feature very much as a side order rather than the main and only then really is something that has brought one of the characters rather a lot of disappointment and pain um, and would write something that I've been trying to articulate for so long so utterly perfectly about motherhood and the work, the professional and economic work being intertwined. The children were part of the work and the work was part of being their mother. That was the point of everything she did, the inseparability of women's intellectual and emotional and bodily labour. You could see it as a burden or a blessing, but the aim was integration, not conquest. I really recommend that as a beach read or a summer read or a garden read or a not leaving your house read. <laughs> Back of the bus read. Yeah, so I think that's, as you said, that is something that we're finding the language for more now. Like I remember hearing Greta Gerwig say it's astonishing to her that, that raising members of society, that somehow that has become diminished work. Yeah. Just because, because it's not economically valued, because it's yeah. sort of, it, it doesn't contribute to the GDP, but it, it should, because no one could earn mm. any GDP if there weren't people raising citizens, like the next generation. Yeah, and, and that, you know, but beyond, like, the industrial notion, like, that's the fabric of society. That's, like, these are the makers of that fabric, you know? And to be able to see that job as a parent, as something that, is as important as the work we do elsewhere. It's just, it's so self-explanatory. Any bits of journalism you'd love to highlight this week? 
Yes, I want to talk about Annie Lord's new dating column for Vogue. I've talked about Annie Lord's writing on the show before. I'm such a massive fan of her writing on love and sex and dating and intimacy and men and women and all the hinterlands in between. She's such a talented writer. I love how she draws on her own life sparingly and poetically and... There's something really raw about her writing, but she's also really funny. The scenes that she paints are so recognisable. It's so difficult to write about dating. And I think she does it in such a specific way. Being specific about love and relationships and courting. There we go. I'm officially 85 is a difficult thing to do with recognisable language, but in a way that's new and she just nails it. So I'm so, so happy that she has a dating column. Once again, brilliant choice by Vogue, who are just making brilliant choices at the moment. And her first instalment is about a boy who she hasn't met, who she's been texting relentlessly through lockdown. He sends me a picture from where he's laid in the park. Too much weed eyes, I can't be bothered with anything eyes. So dark brown, I think about wading into them like a swamp. I pick up all the little details of him and fill in the blanks. In my head his room is messy and covered with mouldy plates with postcards from galleries blue tacked in clusters over the wall. From the rolling R's in his accent and the fact he called a two-month-long trip to Vietnam a holiday, I'm pretty sure he's rich. I can tell he'd be fun to party with an Uber home with a blue sky breaking into apricot out of the window. His head on my lap. I've imagined a whole world with this man. It looks better than the one I'm in. Is neck hissing aloud, he asks, when I message about meeting up. Definitely not, I say. We could touch ourselves, just not each other. That would be pretty hot of you wearing a skirt. I'd want to take off your underwear with my teeth. Mum shouts, tea's ready. After the coronavirus outbreak, I moved back in with my parents. Once again, I'm the bitchy teenager who spends too much time on MSN. Spending every day trapped inside the four beige walls of my bedroom only exacerbates my ability to see Freddie and I together. Lack of stimulation means my mind can imagine scenarios as vividly as an acid trip. At night, my dreams are so alive that when I wake up, my jaw is stiff from grinding my teeth. I think I've worn a filling out. Sometimes when I leave the house, I see people following me and turn around and it's a fence post. I've been cut loose from reality and I'm drifting through outer space. She's just got this tone that I relate to so much of, you know, deep, deep romance and and deep longing and cynicism, (laughs) hopefulness and cynicism. It's a balance she gets so right. I'm sounding like a mad fangirl. I just love her. I think her writing's great. So I'm really looking forward to reading all her dating columns. That's so brilliant to hear her reading that in her own voice and just striking contrast of being back home like an MSN teenager with your mum cooking your tea and writing a dating column for a, for a glossy magazine. The madness of the pandemic. 
I was really absorbed this week in a piece by the novelist Ben Ferguson about his experience of being a new father in Berlin. Ben became one of the first same-sex couples to adopt in Germany. Adoption there is much harder, he writes, because there are less children, which I find quite interesting. And he confronts everything that is different in same-sex fatherhood to that of heterosexual parenthood. And I found the minutiae really interesting. It's an incredibly fair piece. He spends as much time discussing how he thinks mothers are treated as he does himself as a father. For example, he questions the idea of 50-50 parenting. Mothers we knew often told us that they were splitting things 50-50 with the father. When they described their weeks, it turned out that they meant 50-50 in the evenings and at weekends, and usually mothers did all the feeding. As the mother was the constant, she inevitably became the only one who could comfort the child. So she was still doing more parenting, even when the father was around. He also talks about how the criticism levelled at new parents is specifically against mothers in his experience, not fathers. When my husband and I feed our baby in public, we are treated like heroes. Granted, neither of us is offending anyone's delicate sensibilities by bearing a breast, but however loud we are, however much room we take up, or tepid water we order in cafes, we receive only supportive smiles. Mothers can do everything right, but be told they are doing everything wrong, whereas we are congratulated for doing the bare minimum. That's not to say, of course, that as a father, and particularly as a two-father couple, that everything always works in his favour. He writes very pithily about the daily assumptions that a man cannot be the primary caregiver, like the buggy loading bay at his apartment building, where he's, which he's told is for mums. And he says, oh, is that for dads too? Uh, when people think his son is saying mum, when he's actually saying yum. And the nursery applications that cannot be accepted in Berlin without a mother's name. I'm just really glad, again, to have read this the week after we had that discussion and really continue to have have that discussion today about the lenses through which we see mothers and child-free and, and parenthood as a whole. And Ben's piece feels like such a valuable addition to the conversation. Um, I'm so interested in what he has to say. And I thought the payoff actually was gorgeous. I just wanted to end on that as I think you'll really like it, doll. Some comments hint at change. There is the well-meaning but misplaced. I always think a baby needs a mother's breast, but look how happy he is. And from an old Polish builder came the surprisingly tender, baby has two puppers? We were battling with the rain cover from the pram as we sheltered from a storm in a doorway. We nodded. He squinted and sucked at his cigarette. Lucky baby, he said. It's such a lovely oh, that's piece. That's so beautiful, that payoff. Yeah, I'll definitely read that. It's something that I'm woefully uninformed on. I, f- I feel like there's so little that I've sought out and read about same-sex parenting and we need to normalise it and we need to understand it. It's why I love Jen Brister's book so much. Mm. I love this piece because I feel like often when people write kind of from very personal experience it's it's just that it's their point of view i don't often read um pieces which are as kind of self-aware and observant and interested in you know well this is a pro for you and this is a pro for me you know it's an incredibly balanced piece and um he's obviously in it so totally because his experience but he also takes him out of himself out of it at certain points. I think it's a real skill. 
I absolutely love this piece um, and I learned so much from it. And we will link as usual to that in the show notes and we'll put it up on the Hilo's Twitter. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can speak to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com. Bags, hats, notepads, jumpers, you name it, it's there. 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity, which aims to bring awareness, help and support with regards to forced marriage, dishonour-based violence and female genital mutilation, and 50% to Black Minds Matter, which provides therapy and resources to black individuals and families. We are going to leave you with a beautiful song from the new Leanne Havis record. I've listened to nothing else for the last week. It is haunting and sexy and a little bit gnarly and I haven't found one track that I don't love. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.